0: so don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax the way car buying should be.
1: What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? (laughs) Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome to Episode 234 with my guest, Michelle F. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. Uh, It's not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Uh, go there, check it out. You can join the forum, which I highly recommend for people who are um, feeling kind of stuck and alone and isolated and are having trouble getting up the nerve to share uh, their story with other people. The uh, joining the forum is a really great, great, safe way to kind of dip your toe into that, into that water. There's some really, really kind, supportive people there in the forum. Uh, you can also read blogs uh, on the website. You can support the show. Uh, you can fill out a survey, which, as you know, I like to read uh, on the show. Um, thank you to those of you that do uh, fill those out. Um, uh, in a pretty good mood. Uh, right now, I got my cup of tea. I got Ivy laying at my uh, my feet. Um, um, I got my Johnny Cash t-shirt on. And uh, I was just remembering... Um, when I, when i was a kid um johnny cash had a tv show and it would start every week it would start the same way the stage would be completely dark and all of a sudden a spotlight would uh would hit a figure in black and he'd turn around and he'd say hello i'm johnny cash and he'd launch into a song and uh when i was doing uh hosting the tv show dinner and a movie on tbs uh tbs uh hosted a Johnny Cash tribute concert one year and I got free tickets to go see it. And so I was very excited. And, uh, unfortunately this was towards the end of Johnny Cash's career. And so they were like, oh, we're not sure he's going to be able to be here. You know, he's, he's very sick. This was towards the end of his life. And, uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't looking good. And, um, the concert was great. It was a ton of really, really great musicians doing unique covers of his song. And, um, towards the end of it, uh, Tim Robbins uh, was reading, uh, he was at like a podium off to the far stage left and um, stage is completely dark and there's a spotlight on Tim Robbins and uh, he's reading the liner notes to the album uh, at Folsom Prison, which if you've never heard the album or seen the documentary, it's amazing. Johnny Cash went into Folsom Prison and performed for um, all of these inmates and it's insanely good. And so Tim Robbins is reading these liner notes, and he's making a speech about how great Johnny Cash was, and it's very, very eloquent and and moving. And the stage is still completely dark, and all of a sudden, a spotlight hits the center of the stage, and there's a figure all in black, and he turns around, and he faces the crowd, and he says, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. And he launches into walk the line, and then he plays Boy Named Sue, and I don't even remember what he played after that. It was one of the greatest moments in my life.
0: My God,
1: somebody does what I've been doing.
0: You're shame. You have boundary issues. I feel guilty for hating my mom.
1: I will be high by four PM.
0: You feel helpless.
1: I will be in hell by four fifteen.
0: Prison was not easy. Reaching out to the people and sharing with the other people. Um, This intimate connection where people do stuff for each other without wanting something in return. Yeah, I just, I surrender. I think I was 28 and that was the first time I
1: ever experienced that and it was amazing. I'm here with, uh, she's going to call herself Michelle, uh, Michelle F. And uh, you had sent me an email uh, saying that you hadn't heard an episode yet with a hoarder, and you come from a family of, of hoarders, and you yourself used to struggle with it a bit, but not so much now.
2: Not yeah, not not so much now. It's different, but yeah, definitely. When I was little, I definitely had issues with emotional attachment to things. Um, when I was when I was really little, um, th- like. I I would give things much more, um, like, a deeper attachment than maybe normal people would. Mm -hmm. I had a, uh, it was, like, a plastic horse that a neighbor from, like, a long time ago had given me, and that neighbor had moved away. And so, I I associated that horse, this little, like, five-cent horse with that neighbor. And I brought it with me. I was bringing it with me all these places, and I brought it to me with the movie theater, and I lost it. And... I lost it for, like, a whole, like, almost, like, three days, just over this plastic horse. And, like, I, like I you was... You lost it
1: because you lost the horse?
2: I... Yeah, I was I was having my dad call up the movie theater, having them check where, like, where it could be, where it is it. Like, um, I think I might have called them, like, I had my dad call them, like, two days in a row. Like, I was, like, maybe, like, eight, seven, eight. Um, and I just... I like. I was sad for the plastic horse. I had like this thing where things had, you know, the capability of feeling like a person. Um, my stuffed animals were were more than just you know things to me, um, and especially because I associated with that lady. And it was just a five cent horse. And look, and I think after that, after having that episode, um, it made me. Realized that was so insane that I acted that way, and, um, and you were
1: also a child.
2: Yeah, but um
1: I mean that's such a normal kid thing to do. You know, I think it becomes a a, a a problem when you know you're a teenager or an adult, and there's that there's that attachment. I mean, that's just my opinion.
2: Well, the thing was is I I would see. I see my I see my dad and I see myself, and he things are an attach there's attachments to them. We have actually been going through um my aunt died, and we've actually been going through her things and getting rid of things and the thing is she died two years ago, and her house has been empty for two years, and it's just filled with things that haven't been touched because
1: empty from people, but not
2: not from things not from things and um there's there's more to that but basically i was helping my dad the other day and there was a china set and the china set apparently belonged to my great grandma but my dad had always told me how much this lady was not a good person that she was very selfish and self-involved and caused my dad a lot of stress growing up and i asked him why do you want to keep this then right and he's like, well, it was your great grandma's. And I was like, yeah, but that's it's not even good China. It's not even worth that much. It's not even like it's it's, you know, all it was is she was a terrible person. She doesn't mean anything, you know, um, and is like, but it's still your great grandma.
1: So it's not like a it's not like a superstitious thing, is it? Do they feel like they're bad people if they get rid of it? Do they feel like they're like we had a guest um, on and his son and uh, he, the the father was a Holocaust survivor mm-hmm. and his son, who I play hockey with, um, would tell me stories about his about his dad. And what he's like in day-to-day life. And one of the things that dad does is he keeps everything. He keeps the tops of plastic drinking bottles He keep, because he thinks he's going to need. That is like under, understandable. Uh, or I should say, I can see the link between his trauma, living through the Holocaust, and there's feeling a, the need to have that, but I wonder with somebody who's a hoarder, where where does it come from? Is it is it genetic? Is it?
2: I feel like in my family, it is. I feel like I feel like it is a it's a combination of nature and nurture. Like at its worst, because what happens with hoarding, from going from my grandfather to my father and to me, um, I'm an only child, so I didn't have anyone to bounce this off of. I, I spent basically as much time when. 12 and under, I spent as much time alone at my grandparents' house um, as I did at my house, maybe even more so. I was at my grandparents' house more uh, growing up, um, just waiting for my parents. But my my mom would drop me off there before school, and then I so I have to get up really early um, and be there like an hour at least before my school started, and then I would be there sometimes till really late in the evening. Um, And then during the summer, I was just there all the time. I was there... Uh, just basically being babysat while they went to work. Um, And it wasn't until 13 I was able to convince them to at least let me be home alone. Um, And um, growing, so I was basically alone a lot. And that's why I think I started having more attachments to, um, you know, stuffed animals, things like that. Did you
1: have friends when you were at school?
2: I was not very good at making friends. I um I've always had an easier time making friends with guys. Girls has always been more difficult. I don't understand girls and it's still to this day I have a lot of issues um with s- certain types of girls. And um
1: like which kinds?
2: Um mostly the ones that uh How old are you? I'm 27. Okay. Um mostly ones that you know enjoy i guess like normal things like like shopping or celebrity stuff or
1: so kind of stereotypical girly girls you have, I have trouble with
2: i have trouble with i might i and it's funny cuz my dad has an easier time with girls my i think my dad was really happy um that i was a girl and not a guy um my dad has issues dealing with my grandfather like so i don't come from a family of guys that are macho like at all, I come from a family of guys that are um, nerd, maybe um, and flamboyant-ish. My in, my and
1: what was the last thing flamboyant-ish? You said? Oh, flamboyant-ish. I guess.
2: my my grandfather is an engineer.
1: Do you mean like in terms of their sexuality?
2: Oh no, just in terms of like my dad is just very social, like a like a woman can be
1: gregarious. And, yeah, and he's chatty,
2: chat very chatty. Okay, um, and my grandpa is very not. Um, my my dad was very much coddled by his mom, mm-hmm. and so he, they have a very close. My grandma is very close with my dad, and she loved you know she loved me growing up. Um, but my grandfather was very scary. Um, he scared me a lot, and my dad had the same scary tendencies at times as well.
1: In, in what way were they scary?
2: When they got mad, um, they would just lose it like if they basically they had to be right and they had to win and everyone else had to be um put in their place and especially if i try to come to my dad and tell him and tell him how he did something and it made me feel a certain way um he turned it around and he was a victim and how dare i come to him and say things that um you know make him feel bad
1: so basically he was doing what was done to him
2: um, I don't know if my grandpa... my I, A little bit. It was just... It was, it's kind of different because my dad was much more in tune, I think, with, with, with feeling. My grandpa was not that in tune with it. He was much more cold. Um, basically, women take care of the kids. I come home and I go work on train models. Mm-hmm. I go build something. My grandfather can take a car apart and put it back together. He's that kind of person. Um, he has about... Probably a hundred bicycles that he's never rid, uh, rode um that are in his dun garage. Done rid. Done rid. Done rid. Done rid, ridded. Ridded. Done got rid. <laughs> rode. <God. laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah.
1: Well, I, you know, it, it it occurs to me that while your grandfather maybe couldn't deal with his feelings, both your grandfather and your father couldn't deal with other people's feelings. That that's what they shared in common was yeah. they didn't.
2: Oh, for they sure. They didn't want
1: to know what you were feeling. They didn't, it sounds like they were afraid of feeling shame or responsibility or, or something. Yes. There's a, a book I've talked about quite frequently on this podcast that I read that really uh, helped me understand my shame. Um, it's called Healing the Shame That Binds, and it, uh, it's by John Bradshaw. And he talks about how um, if parents haven't dealt with their own shame, um, boy, my thing is really loud. I'm just going to adjust this a little bit. Um, if parents don't deal with their their shame uh there's a good chance that they will pass it on to their to their children and uh it do you is is shame an emotion that you feel like you um I apologize for this volume going all over the place uh it, is shame something that you feel like you um god I hate this this piece of hardware it no. well that's a little better um it goes from like zero to 10 and there's like no in between you either can't hear it um, it's very frustrating um, now I lost my train of thought um, oh shame oh yes. if, if parents don't process their people in general if they don't process their own shame they become um, their coping mechanisms become, I will put my shame on other people. You know, I will make them out to be the, the enemy. They will always be wrong. Because for them, if they haven't processed their shame, to feel shame so reminds them of that awful feeling in childhood where you're experiencing pain, but there's nobody there to, to let you know that this is a normal part of life, that it, it's equated with failure. It's, and there's, you know, he, he talks about the difference between healthy shame and toxic shame. Because you know it's I don't think we would evolve as a society if we didn't if we didn't feel a certain amount of shame, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, but um where does it where does it become toxic i guess, and so i I asked you is um is shame something that you uh struggle with i
2: I don't know if I have shame, but I definitely have feelings of never feeling worthy or never feeling um good enough um, I definitely have feelings of. You know, wanting so much of myself, wanting to do better than my parents. And then sometimes when I don't feel like I'm accomplishing that, I'm very hard on myself.
1: Financially or emotionally or both?
2: Um, both. Yeah.
1: yeah. Do you consider yourself and do you mean socially as well?
2: I honestly, um, I don't think so like I I guess like I would like it if I could be more um social but I um I just I have such a hard time I have a hard time especially with being groups with people just larger groups and um I'm just much better as a one-on-one type person I just that's my comfort zone um I think
1: a lot of people feel that way. I think a lot of people become overwhelmed when I, you know when I'm at parties if there's a lot of people that I don't know, I really can't wait to leave. It's it, even if I'm not having to talk to them, there's just an energy there that drains me.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um when I was younger, I did have a girlfriend that was I was very close with, but it was very chaotic and um it ended on bad terms and it was basically uh since then i uh i basically that was the last time i really had a close female friend i actually though have had a friend now that's a pen pal in the uk and she's a girl and it it, and we have a great connection and our we have a great friendship but um how did you find her um it was through like we i want to do art and cartooning and she wants to do video game art and so we found each other through an art and it's been really lovely the
1: internet (laughs) connects people like that,
2: yeah it's, it's been amazing it's
1: so great it's so it's so good for the creation of of things like when you think about the odds that a band like the Beatles would would come about four guys just with the perfect harmonies that they would all be born in the same town and all know each other, you know that's a once in a yeah once in a lifetime thing, but now that there's the internet i ju- I just think the chances of really, really great. Art happening is is so much better now. Yeah, it's so democratic. Let's go back to the, the hoarding thing for uh, a minute. Describe room by room, the house that you grew up in. Walk me walk me <laughs> through literally walk me. Th- no, I guess not literally, we'd have to get up and go drive there. But um, God, that word is overused these <laughs> days. Um, so talk so, talk me through it.
2: So the house I lived in was a really good-sized house, it's, and it's kind of an odd-shaped house. Um, it's kind of cool. I mean, I, I do love the house. It has only one neighbor, and the other side is just a forest, so you can just look outside and you see trees um, and deer and
1: stuff like that. Were you that. raised in Southern California?
2: Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, I lived in Ventura County. Okay. So, um, and uh, it's just uh, lovely, but so we have a family room. Um, a good sized kitchen that has like it's big enough for like an island. Um, we have an entry hall, a dining room, a uh, a living room, and then there's four bedrooms in the in the back. And then so your first- parents had some money. Um, yeah, you know that that's part of the thing that I guess was so frustrating growing up was feeling like we we did have enough money, but then nothing ever went to anything substantial there was never any my parents were never my mother was a was would spend she was just she would hide both my parents would hide purchases from each other so they wouldn't have to face each
1: other so money money was a a cause of tension
2: it was a cause of my mom had credit cards basically billed to her work so she so my dad would never find them and he never knew about them for years um was she in debt yes My mom believes, she once told me that, um, a little bit of debt is okay. (laughs) I was like, and the problem was it was just feeling like if I wanted something or I thought, you know, wouldn't it be nice to go and like do something nice or everything was cheap. My dad would never let me like, he was very picky about what we could order off a menu every time if we went out, if we went out, um, you but, know,
1: but it, it, it wasn't a matter of was it a matter of we just don't have the money, or he just didn't want to spend it on that.
2: Just didn't want to spend it on that. It, said, but it always made it feel like we're one step away from being broke.
1: That's how we presented it, or that's how it felt to you.
2: That's how it always felt to me. Like we're we're not doing well. We're never doing well. But it's like if we only you know work together with our finances, we'd be fine. But it always felt like because my mom would go out and she would spend so much money on clothes and makeup and all it was like always high-end stuff she would never i wasn't until i got older because i was never really a makeup person but i wanted to do like creams i started looking into it i have phases and um i found out there's so much alternatives that were like dollars and were the same thing and knowing that and knowing what she would go and spend but the thing was with my mom she would spend about whatever it was that she spent for herself she would spend it on me as well like so she was i guess it was and also i had this idea that well if you spend so much on you then i could guilt trip them into getting me things because um they went and spent so much on themselves and i didn't ask for a lot but when i asked for something i i kind of expected Did she
1: pressure you to be girlier
2: oh when i was younger oh we had fights yeah yeah oh yeah Um, my mom wanted me to be a little girl and i wanted i wanted nothing more every time i go shopping i wanted to go to the boys' section i wanted to buy i wanted boy clothes i thought they were cooler um
1: you still feel that way yeah yeah <laughs> feel- you, you, cuz you're, you're dress uh boyish i guess
2: i get, like i i um i love cartoons mm-hmm. and i feel like um You know, sometimes the the, the market, the only market to boys with cartoons and, you know, Transformers and things like that. And so you end up getting that stuff because it's all that you can get. Um,
1: My wife is very much (laughs) like like (laughs) you. Jeans and T-shirts.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes you have phases where you want to be girly. I have some girly clothes, but I never feel comfortable enough to wear it. Um
1: So uh, describe the the house. The The house, I'm Mm -hmm. sorry.
2: Um, So the house, the front, so my house is kind of like, it's kind of got, it's split almost where the front end of the house was always semi-ish clean, kind of, but the back of the house was always the mess. So there was like a long hallway that was always covered in stuff and you had to like step over things. Um, And growing up, everything seemed to tower over me when I was like little, um, or as I got older it became the same height as me and um, you'd have to, you could never go you could never walk through the entire house with the lights out because you would trip on things for sure um, My dad had an office in the back room and it was just always covered in stuff um, He had paperwork CDs and he, it was basically there was no way you could get from the door to the computer without breaking a CD case under your foot it was. That was a uh, constant,
1: and stuff was piled three, four feet high.
2: Yes. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, pretty much. It, it was like it was like a it was like a slope that would go against the wall of okay. stuff. Um,
1: and what percentage of the floor was covered?
2: In my dad's office was probably the worst, and it was probably like ninety nine percent of the floor. There was like a littleish trail, maybe, yeah. but it was basically like a thin layer of
1: stuff. And most of and most of it was just kind of was it. Did he use all these things, or was it just shit he was afraid to throw away?
2: Um, I mean, I think a lot of it, he was afraid to throw away anything, especially when I was younger. He especially had fears of throwing away things what, when I was younger. What are
1: some, to you, some of the most ridiculous things that your family held on to, where you were like, why are they? The one that always kills me is the old newspapers. It's oh, that's like, my
2: grandfather. My grandfather's yeah. the newspapers. My dad wasn't so much the newspapers. Um, but
1: I can see clippings of newspapers but entire newspapers that was always like what
2: yeah that was that was my grandpa um my dad um what was it oh so the most ridiculous thing i i i think it was the moment that i was like this is really bad like this was like this was me starting to figure out this was in high school i was figuring out that this was maybe a deeper seated thing and I was we have a loft in the garage and I was actually trying to clear out a space in the loft and get out like this old furniture and stuff that was just sitting there that wasn't doing anything. And my dad opened a drawer and one of like this dresser and he found like a cardboard box that was covered in red tinfoil. And he says to me, this was a package that your great grandfather opened on Christmas when he was like eight years old or something. It was just the box. It wasn't the gift. It wasn't... It was just... He somehow was able to keep a cardboard box from... I don't know. Was it 1911 or whatever it was? And I was like, wow. um, (laughs) I need to throw that away. And he wouldn't... He just wouldn't do... He just... It's
1: it's like... It sounds like your dad, because he didn't get what he wanted to emotionally, he... You know, he put the emotion into the things that represented what he should have gotten. Was tradition a big thing to your dad?
2: Yes. Tradition is huge to my dad.
1: Yeah, because it sounds like that the traditions are where he could feel love. Yeah,
2: my dad would freak out about little things. Like, he'd make big deals out of little things that he found offensive. One of the things was um, my mom's side of the family. They're just a little, they're different, you know. Um, but they're more normal, I would say than my dad's side, but, um, they would write on, on, a, you know, uh, what do you call it? Christmas cards when you get a gift instead of writing love. Sometimes they would write from, and my dad found that offensive and he had a talk with them. And he told me that he's like, I put, I set them straight. And because you say, when you love someone, you say love, you know, and that was, that was worth fighting for.
1: And, and yet it sounds like it was so difficult for him to express love in a way that wasn't attached to tradition.
2: Yeah, it was attached to things. Things were love.
1: Right. Did he ever tell you he loved you?
2: Oh, yeah. My dad, okay. my, both my parents, I'm very lucky in the fact that my parents, both my parents love me and always say they're proud of me. I have that from them. And I love my parents. I want to make clear, too, that this, like, when of my younger life and my life now are very separate. They're almost like two different how so, people. How so? Um, I have a I have a wonderful relationship with both my parents now. Um, I wouldn't. I am so thankful because when I was younger, I had a lot of anger and a lot of um, rage towards my parents about just yeah. not being heard.
1: Yeah. Do you and you? Do you feel like they changed, or you've come to accept how they are?
2: Um. Or it's both? a little bit of both. Yeah. It's a little bit of both.
1: What have they come to accept about you?
2: Um. You know, they just don't judge me. My mom doesn't try and change me, especially like what she did when I was little. Um, and my dad, yeah, I just think he just, they're just much more accepting. They never really had an ideal way, f- like, you know, for me to be successful. They just had. Like it's more about the little intricacy kind of thing. Like my mom maybe wanted me more girly. I think my mom she's fine with me now, but definitely when I was younger.
1: Sounds like she was she was trying to protect you from maybe feeling ostracized. Like she just wanted you to to fit in. I you, think
2: I think though her pushing me pushed me further. I think is what happened. It
1: seems like it so often does.
2: I guess so. Growing up, the biggest problem areas in the house to finish that off um it was definitely the garage the garage is probably it's a weird um in the sense that it's a three-car garage um but it's but it's high enough if if only the entrance was high enough you could probably stick an rv in there um so there was enough room for like this loft so basically it was a garage that had like a second floor to it Mm -hmm. um and that was where a majority of the christmas stuff and other things were kept and um and my dad would go. My, both my my dad and my grandma would go all out with Christmas decorations. Like my grandma would get three trees. She got turning trees that would turn on themselves. <laughs> um, yeah, she had. She would get um, almost Disneyland like animatronic, like deer and and sleigh, like horses. And would
1: she buy new stuff every year?
2: Oh, she loved. Oh, she, yeah. Oh, for
1: sure. So, what's the difference, though, between somebody that gets into it? Because, like, my wife gets into Christmas. She loves Christmas. She loves buying stuff for it, but it doesn't ever feel like it's a problem. What begins in your mind to make it unhealthy?
2: Well, my grandma, I'll start with my grandparent, my grandma, and I'll go to my dad. My grandma, um, like they loved Department Fifty Six. When I was growing up, Department Fifty Six was too. very vogue. Um, you know, we, we would go and we buy the really expensive ones. We knew the collectors and the all snow that. Snow
1: villages, stuff. yeah.
2: And she built. We she basically she had a green room, and so and also understand. My grandparents' house was also bigger than the house I grew up in, and but it was she had a room. It was basically it was had uh, layouts basically built out all year round for department 56 so it's out all year round and then she had other places around the house that also had little scenes for department 56 and oh she even had like she has a box piano and she just had a whole layout of department 56 on top of the piano like so it was just part of the house and there was a christmas tree that was up all year round
1: um, they dust all this stuff
2: my that's what, when I when I wrote to you and I said that my family's house is like the Addams family or the Munsters. Yeah, it was dusty. <laughs> it was it was that dusty, uh, and that and that Victorian Art Nouveau kind
1: of. Where there's crevices, fucking galore.
2: So I'm a little kid, and I have to just be there all the time, and I can't touch anything. Um, basically, was uh, the way I was kind of, and basically my grandfather. He didn't know how to deal with me, I guess. And so if I came over there, I had to decide whether I was going to spend the day upstairs or downstairs. And I was not allowed to go between floors. And if I did, if he caught me, because he did once and I was and I was just like yelled at and scolded. And why? Because basically they didn't want to have to watch me. And they just wanted to trust that I would just stay in one place. You were afraid
1: you were going to break some of their precious things?
2: I think some of that probably was my... my, Not my grandma, but my grandpa probably. But I think it was just they didn't want to have to go looking for me. So I was either in the one room that was upstairs or I was somewhere downstairs.
1: Was there any kind of uh, trauma or big, you know, traumatic event in your family's history? Or is just all this kind of under-the-surface generation to generation
2: um, I think it's just this thing of dealing with my grandfather's um inability like he's basically he he loves things more than he loves people um, for me my thing is is anger or when people get angry or people yell at each other or if I'm in a situation where I don't even know someone, and they're yelling at their kid, and they're getting mad and short with them. I internalize it, and I shut down. I shut down with anger. Um,
1: Even if it's not directed at you, just being around it, it's a trigger.
2: It's a trigger. Um, I, um, yeah, I don't like being in trouble. I, um, and I don't like, um, I don't like other people being... um, in trouble i guess or being because for me emotional right a little bit um because for me um anger was always what it was it was like i was getting angry at you but i'm really angry at someone else and i'm taking it out on you It was never fair um so um and i think um i think my dad and my aunt had that too with my grandpa it was just never fair it was always um you know, not in proportion.
1: Yeah, I couldn't. Uh, I, I. It's not that I was. Um, I wasn't trying to shame you about yeah, get about getting emotional. I just your eyes looked red, yeah. and I couldn't tell because I personally I love when my guests get <laughs> emotional. It's like, I I love it. No. Um, but I guess I wanted to know because I was like, Her eyes just red, or is is this bringing up stuff? Yeah. What 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 is What's that bringing up when you think about that is it just kind of remind you of this scared little kid that didn't have anybody?
2: Yeah, I um, or didn't
1: feel like she had anybody.
2: Yeah, I think it was kind of difficult because I was an only child. So it wasn't like I had someone that also knew what was going on. Um, I uh, my mom was kind of. She was kind of absent a lot of the time. She would she basically buried herself in work, so she didn't have to be home in the mess. Um,
1: was, was she a contributor to the mess, or was it? did it get on her nerves, or did she just not say anything about it? I
2: think my mom was in denial for a very long time. Um, she had her own mess, but... It, I mean, I think we all kind of had our own. Her mess
1: was in her soul. <laughs> I couldn't resist.
2: Um, no, it 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 was just if you were to take inventory of what belonged to who, it was mostly my dad.
1: I see. What else do you want to talk about?
2: Um, so I'll talk about another instance where my uh, my dad. He wanted like he he wanted to be a, a good dad. Um you know, he tried to do things. It was just when I was getting older, I st- I had a block towards him because I couldn't trust that anything he did was He would always try and do things what he what he thought were the things that I would like because that's what he thought was the best way for me to like something or love something. So it didn't
1: feel loving. It felt controlling.
2: It felt controlling. And um, because I wouldn't react a certain way. So one of the things he would do is he would always try and buy me gifts, whether or not like, but he would give me gifts that felt like he didn't know me. They were always kind of go ahead <laughs>
1: i so relate that was one of the things that helped me finally realize that i wasn't being seen by one of my parents was i looked at the history of gifts and i was like year after year it's things i've if this person knew me they would know i have not only do i not have an interest in it but i don't like it and i've said this is not something i'm interested in thank you yeah. you know for thinking of me but and it's just like it just felt like yeah. Control.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I mean, I it got to the point when I was getting older that I just didn't want to ask for things for Christmas because I was always disappointed, and I just was sick of being disappointed every time. Um, one year, my dad just went on like I think the last time I I had asked for something I forget what it was I wanted, but basically the whole Christmas was just a bunch of Bugs Life gifts
1: like Bugs
2: Bugs Life it was like the toys from the Pixar movie oh okay and they were kind of more younger by that time they were a little bit too on the younger side for me I still love toys um that's something my dad and I are kind of like but it was just something I've never said anything about this I never mentioned it anywhere and it was just all of a sudden I had all these weird toys um and then my mom would get me a Jewel CD and I was like who's Jewel? (laughs) I don't even know who this is. And she's like, well, ask the girls in your class because they know who she is. And I was like, I (laughs) I was like, so, um, but you know, they tried, I guess it was just, um, it it was just, it made me sad. It made me sad that it felt like uh, they didn't get it, I guess
1: and then you feel like a terrible person because it's you're not, like not grateful. Yeah, like I'm not grateful, but it's really it's not about the gift, it's not about the money. It's it's about them them seeing you. Yeah. You know, my wife will always say it doesn't matter to me how much money you spend. I just want to know that it you're thinking yeah about me.
2: Yeah, or what would you would you, what would you like instead of what I think you want? Yeah. Or what I would like you to like.
1: Or what I think is good for you. Right. (laughs) That's like, that's almost like the anti-gift, what I think is good, (laughs) what I think is good for you.
2: Yeah. Um, But there was an incident. So my dad would do a lot of garage sales. That was also a pastime of his was the garage sale. And, um,
1: selling or buying,
2: buying, Oh, um. <laughs> I, bet
1: he, I bet that made him feel alive, huh?
2: Oh yeah. That was the thing, especially growing up. Cause he used to go play tennis and then we would go garage sale hunting together. And, um, and then it got to the point where he started sneaking stuff home. And, um, even though like my mom and I would tell him like, you can't do this. He would still do it. My mom would catch him, but my mom would go and buy stuff and sneak. Stuff. So it's like no one could listen to each other because no one.
1: It's like two alcoholics sneaking drinks.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um. But one time I had seen like at Staples or Office Depot like a really like like they're small kind of like drafting table kind of things like I don't they're like little like they're not like um. They're not, they're not encompassing, but they're like these little things are maybe a hundred dollars or something like that. And I thought that's all that drafting tables was. I didn't know that there was like a whole world of drafting tables. And, um, I asked for one cause I wanted one for, for drawing cause I would draw on the floor a lot and it was hurting me. And, um, I come home one day and I actually had a friend over when this happened. And, uh, this was a, this was a terrible day. Um, Basically, my dad had bought, he found a drafting table and it was like a real professional architecture drafting table that's huge wood. It's like, it's, it's like, um, taller than your hip. And, um, I didn't have any room in my room for this thing. It took over, I couldn't get to a part of my closet and I couldn't get to any of the books on my bookshelf. And it basically took up a lot of space in my room. And I said, this isn't going to fit. I can't have this in my room. And he exploded on me and told me I wasn't grateful that I'm a little brat. And he's like, I got this for you. You you should appreciate it. You asked for this. And I said, but this is huge. Like, this isn't going to fit in here. And um, he basically, he just let it out on me. And so my and my friend was there, too. So she witnessed this whole thing. I cry and we go outside and we kind of, like, she calms me down. I come back in. My dad has decided to start doing taxes on the drafting table in my room. He just got out all the taxes and started <laughs> doing dra- doing them in my room.
1: Like, if you're not going to use it, I'm going to use it.
2: I, I guess. Yeah. But it was bizarre. It was the most bizarre thing he's ever done. And he leaves the room at one point and I start grabbing the taxes and I start getting them together and I take them out of my room because this is my room. This is not where you do taxes. This is bizarre. And um, this happened when I was probably in middle school. I was in middle school and this happened. And and he got so mad at me for doing that because I messed up the order that all these papers were in. I don't know. All I know is, is you're in my room doing something that you shouldn't be doing. And um, I don't know, it was just, it's a a memory that um, it was very painful at the time. And later, um, my boyfriend, who's now my husband, um, my dad joked about it with him, like it was no big deal that I got unreasonably upset about this. And my and and, um my husband was like, "What? (laughs) Like this is so weird. Why were you doing taxes? Like,
1: um." I I mean, it sounds like like your dad, because of his hoarding, lacks a sense of um, like spatial." Boundaries? Spatial boundaries and spatial, um, you know, a, a, a sense of moderation. Like, I mean, I know the hoarding is certainly a lack of moderation, like all addictions are. But the buying the gigantic thing and yeah. not being able to see that, oh, this is this is not going to be functional at all. This is yeah. going to be an impediment to her life in her room. I mean, it sounds like it... Like, it came from this really sweet place where he's like, I want to get my daughter the best drafting table. Yeah. And he was probably, in his warped mind, thought you were going to be overjoyed. He was probably so disappointed that yeah. I imagine that's where his his hurt came from. But then you were hurt because it's like, Dad, can't you...
2: You see, I can't live in my room. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's no... Yeah, I... Uh- it's probably true he probably like i'm sure like that's what he always was he's was always excited to find something i think and i think he really thought oh she asked for this so i know she's really going to like it
1: is yeah. was bigger kind of always better with oh, your yes. dad
2: yeah. oh yeah yeah that's that's very true actually yeah um always get the biggest and the best um and my grandpa is the same way too i kind of took inventory of all their issues and decided, you know, to try and do everything opposite of them as much as they could. Um, that's why when I was little and I realized um, after crying after a little plastic horse, I was going to try and actually get rid of things, purge things, and it was very difficult. I remember the first time that I did it, and it was very, very hard.
1: What do you remember thinking or feeling?
2: That I'll never see these animal these stuffed animals again. Um, this will be the last time I touch them, feel them, Um you know hug them um, and there it's gone it's out of my life I'll be sad it's just a very weird like you have this very weird very um, real like feeling of, of this weird attachment to things it's like and it's like you don't even see it like you don't even see the thing forever but once you do you're like oh I remember that and I remember everything about it and I can't let go of that it's very very hard
1: do you ever still feel that way about things? Or how long does it take for something for you to get over that that feeling of loss when you have to get rid of something?
2: It's much easier now. But, yeah, I, I deal with it sometimes, for sure.
1: Yeah. When, when was the last thing that you remember getting rid of that gave you anxiety, but you got rid of it anyway? And how long did it take? And what were the thoughts and feelings that came up?
2: I just had a ton of jackets um I had a ton of jackets that I had to get rid of. Um that my husband made me get rid of. And I I love jackets. <laughs> and uh I just remember sometimes they were jackets that I bought with my mom, so I have memories of buying them with my mom or you know getting them from somebody or getting them as a gift. Like I remember all those things. And that's something I think a hoarder does too. Not only do they remember the thing that they have, but they remember the moment that they got it, they remember where they were. They remember who gave, like they just remember, like it just brings up everything.
1: It's almost like people that compulsively take pictures and document That's every, my dad. every concert that they're at and every.
2: My dad would uh, do that too and he would drive me nuts. Everything I did, like he would try and sneak pictures of me and it would make me so mad because I hate my picture being taken. And um, and he still does it to this day where he'll just do it because he, like, he wants to take the picture but he doesn't care how it makes me feel.
1: Um, so it sounds like there's a fear that that like moments are going to disappear forever. That that there's almost like an invisibility or a, a an ephemeral quality to life that that they can't reconcile with. That that things that, that you know, life changes and things evolve, and it's almost like they want things to stay. Oh. frozen in a way. I would imagine that your dad has a great difficulty with, with change. He's very oh, yeah. habitual. In yes.
2: And things. my my grandfather does too. And one of the things is my grandfather's not doing very well, like right now. He's kind of in the stages of dying. And, um, but the issue, like, uh, I think my dad mentioned something about how he was going to, like, move some stuff, or he was gonna, what he was going to do to one of the rooms in my grandfather's house when he when he goes and he i guess my grandfather was like you mean it's not gonna stay the same like he really like that was like like he
1: wanted to control it after his death
2: oh my my mom and i always joke that if he could he would take everything with him to the grave or like to the afterlife
1: just a gigantic coffin
2: yeah (laughs) if he could
1: he would that's the you know one of the problems with with addicts, and I include myself in this in this group, is you know the three qualities that all addicts share is self-centered, emotionally immature, and hypersensitive to criticism. And interesting, the, the addict, and I would certainly qualify. You know, I would include hoarders in the and qualify that as a as an addiction, in my opinion. Um, we think we know there's an inherent arrogance to a lot of even if they have low self-esteem often that's our arrogance is a a failed attempt to compensate for our fear of not being enough not fitting in and so we we have these rigid ideas of, of how everyone should act and when people don't act the way we think they should act we become terrified that our world is going to fall apart Mm -hmm. and it sounds to me like that was the way that your dad was trying to parent you was this way that he knew in his mind he was sure this is how i'm going to show her that i love her this is and he couldn't see that he was trying to control you that he wasn't you know and that's
2: how he treated my mom too we were both victims Yeah, Yeah.
1: there's like there's like a I think being a good parent and friend and uh, there's like an improvisational quality to it where you just have to not bring expectations to it and just try to be flexible. But I think a lot of addicts um, were such control freaks that to be flexible is to not know what the outcome is going to be. And that's terrifying to us. The unknown is scary to most people, but to addicts, the unknown is terrifying. And it's why a lot of us don't go get help and we die from our addiction, because we would prefer the awful familiar to the promised better, because there's that element of, uh, I don't believe them. You know, I believe that good things happen to other people.
2: Right. And like, and for me... I'm so I'm glad that my mom is away from my dad and um I'm able to have a healthy relationship with my dad because there's like a space now between us. Um but if my dad was in a healthier place and if he you know was able to resolve his a lot of his issues, like I would totally be in favor of my mom and him being back together. Like it's not that I think he thinks that I um support the divorce out of being mean or spiteful or anything like that and it's not true it's just he's not in a good place and one time he came over to me and he was he was basically telling me that he thought he might have a shot of maybe getting back together with my mom and he was basically trying to tell me to stay away um to not interfere and I told him I was like, you know, if you really want to get back together with mom, a good place to start would be to clean that house. And he's and he kept telling me that's not that's not it. That's not it right now. I just would just need to take her on a date. I just need to remind her of, you know, the good of the good that I can bring kind of thing. And I was like, you know, you really no one wants to live in that, and I kept trying to tell him, like, you really—if sh- you—if you really wanted to make an effort to get back with mom, you should really clean up the house and keep it clean. And he just didn't believe me, and he—he's never listened to me, and that kind of hurt. But like, my whole life, I've tried to tell him you need to clean up the house. Uh, one point I had—I um, was younger because so one of the problems with growing up with a hoarder is that you're not really allowed to have friends over. Because they don't want other people seeing their shame. But I always rebelled against it because I always felt it's not my fault that the house is a mess. Why do I get denied what other kids get to do because you don't have your shit together? And um so I and I always got punished for it, but my parents were never good at um what do you call it? Like like uh keeping, you know, their punishments. They weren't very good at follow through.
1: They weren't consistent with it. That's interesting because your dad would defend that there was nothing wrong with this, yet he wouldn't want people coming over. So how did he explain that? Was it just that he thought other people would misinterpret it as being problematic? Or, I mean, how does, what would they say to you about why you can't have friends over?
2: They would just say the house is messy. The house is a mess.
1: And did you ever say, well, then clean it up?
2: Probably when I got a little bit older, but it was like, no, like or like if I tried to do, like if I tried to be proactive and help him go through things, it was either he thought I broke something or he would say, well, I'll get to it later. Like, don't touch that. I'll, I'll do it.
1: It's, it's so hard to deal with an addict who's in denial. It, and, and that's why it's, it can be in its own sickness for people who are codependent and why I urge them to go get help. Um, Because you can often be um, as sick, even though it's a different type of sickness, trying to get that person to change, trying to, you know, you wind up, uh, you know, becoming manipulative, uh, feeling self-righteous in your resentment. And while you certainly have uh, a reason to feel resentful, staying stuck stuck in it and not giving that person any consequences allows you to have this imaginary moral high ground where you can say, I'm right. I'm right. Um, so it becomes this sick feeding cycle where nobody's getting help and everybody's being the victim.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was just, I, I guess I felt like a lot of times that I would try and, um, I guess, be the parents from my parents. But some, but none of us are listening to each other at all because they're my parents, but I'm not listening. For what reason do I... Like, I would always laugh and my dad would tell me to clean my room. <laughs> I would be like, really? <laughs> and then I would shut the door. Cause I, I, and that was something he would get mad at me at. He would get mad at me at so much for having my door closed because I would just spend hours in my room by myself because I had nowhere to go and I didn't want to deal with them. And so...
1: He probably wanted your love so badly.
2: Yeah. But it was... He was just so difficult. He was... It it was because... How how do you... You know, like I wanted a connection. It wasn't... I was so angry uh, for for so long. And it hasn't been until recently that I really started, you know, making progress with my dad and having a much closer relationship. And it's been... It's been the most freeing... I, I I've, The last couple of years, I've been like at the most peace I've ever been in my life. Because How, growing up, I was so angry. I didn't even know I was angry.
1: How would you get there?
2: I, um... Well, I think a lot of it was because when my mom left, my dad had to really, like, kind of look at himself a little bit more. Like, he actually had to admit maybe he was a little wrong. Um, But he goes back and forth on that.
1: Is there anything else that you want to touch on was there any work that you did to to get to the place where you got have this more peaceful relationship with your dad I or was think, it just him coming around
2: i mean it would definitely help that he kind of was able to come around um was there
1: anything that he said to you or was it just his actions that kind of have softened
2: it was his actions it was his basically a lot of it is his attempt to to control his anger mm-hmm. was very Helpful and very, like, because I don't think he believed he was that angry.
1: Um, Has he ever acknowledged that his outbursts had been inappropriate or frightening to you?
2: Um, Sort of. We had, we, we kind of, we talked about it. I think the closest was, I would say things like when I was little, you made me shut down because you would just yell at me. Because he would, when he, he was, he was yelling and he was going to win. It was not a conversation. It was not up for debate. I was going to win. And and um, I said to him, well, didn't Grandpa do that to you? And what did you do when Grandpa did that? And he's like, I guess I shut down. And,
1: and how long ago did you say this to him?
2: That was probably four or five years ago and and what did he say after after
1: he hurt himself i shut down
2: um i think i think let's go shopping (laughs) yeah he i think he just he it it just seemed to click a little bit more but i think he still has a wall of how much damage that really did Um, But I think we kind of connected on that.
1: Well, you know, what's beautiful is that you are able to not forget the past, but not hold him, not wait for all of that to be cleaned up to move forward with him today that you're, you know, because I think that's so important. You know, one of the reasons I don't have contact with my mom is not because of what she did. It's because she doesn't change. And I've tried to express, and I've tried to, um, yeah. And it's it that is the reason why I don't have contact. But it's it's beautiful that you're um, kind of open hearted about.
2: Well, because I felt like being being angry takes so much more energy than I have, you know. Um, but also, I mean, it does help a lot that you know, he's, he has made the effort for the things that were definitely the things that were my triggers. Um, and, um, so that's been helpful, but like, he still has issues with the hoarding. He still goes to garage sales. He, um, the home shopping network is the hoarder channel. Um, for sure. My, like you could go over there and just turn on the television. It's on QVC. Um, my dad wanted to show love through things and my grandpa wanted things to love, I guess. Um, and he kind of ignored um, everything that was going on around him.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Collecting, there's this this weird line between where does passion become obsession? Um, I've gone through phases of collecting things that were so clearly sick, that were so clearly, it, it was just a way of distracting myself from whatever it was, at feelings I was experiencing that were overwhelming but it felt it was it was like a high to me and when i wasn't you know purchasing them i was online looking for them and it was uh and once i processed the pain that i was running from it went away yeah the the doing things um
2: i think that's how my mom is i think that's what shopping is for her it's a thing to reduce the pain of something um
1: is a way to focus on on something. Yeah, it's kind of an unhealthy meditation. <laughs> yeah, because you feel alive. You feel so. You know, when I would look at guitars online or sports cards, uh, you know, I was collecting sp- football and basketball cards for a while, um, and then vinyl LPs. And I would just it was like I had a cup of coffee. Yeah, when I would look at these. At these things and just the thought the anticipation that I could one day have the perfect collection of them felt like like almost I would eventually be held like I would be in the arms of God.
2: That was something definitely um, the collections is definitely something that's my that my family has. And I think that's what also made it harder to recognize the hoarding
1: Um. Because you're like, this is my hobby.
2: Yeah. And then, well, it's like everyone has collections, right? And one of the things was when I was little, like, so my dad would collect comic books and police memorabilia and um, like lots of like stuff like that besides the antiques and things, mm-hmm. Christmas stuff. Um, so when I was little, the big thing was Beanie Babies.
1: Oh, my God.
2: My dad would move the earth. And mountains to help me have a final collection of any beanie baby that I wanted. It was so he was, in a way, kind of feeding it to me because I became obsessed with all this stuff and having to have everything. And I mean, that, and if, and if anyone remembers that time or being a kid in that time, it was insane. Like how much people were spending and giving and trying to get these.
1: Your dad must have been in heaven because it was a way for him to connect with you and yeah. show his love.
2: And also he, but also this is the thing too, is he approved of that. Like he thought it was cute. And so I was a lot, like he would help me get it. But if he wasn't into it, if there was something I was into that he, like mm-hmm. I was into Transformers and he, they weren't cute to him, so I had to save up my money and buy them myself, and um, he did, had no interest. So that was also an issue that I always kind of had that with That sounds him. very boyish. My dad? Yeah.
1: He's a boy? Kind, yeah, you know, kind of like, they're, like a childlike, uh, like oh. he has a childlike quality. I would, you know, I would it, bet, yeah, because my
2: grandma coddled him forever.
1: Yeah, at least in you describing him, I, I just kind of get the feeling. And, you know, I suppose that's part of the the immaturity of the, of the addict is, like, when we find something that we like, we're childlike about it. We're like...
2: Yeah, he would light up. He lights the, up when he gets, a, like, a final collection or yeah. anything like that. Or finds, like, a rare item that you know, it's hard to find and he got it for cheap. Like he just loves that.
1: When I first started woodworking, you know, I went from buying one tool to within a year having a, like a professional cabinet shop in my garage. And I did it all myself. You know, I learned about everything and I researched all the tools and, you know, put some of the machines together and put this huge amount of work. And I was very passionate about it. And I remember, uh, I was showing one of my friends it and he and he said to somebody afterwards, he's fucking crazy. And and I laughed because it was kind of true. It was it it wasn't just a hobby. It was like it was bordering on like a sickness, like like this, like this is not there was no sense of moderation.
2: It went from zero
1: to eight hours a day, and reading magazines, and being at dinner with my wife, and thinking about getting back in the wood shop.
2: Have you ever done anything like that before?
1: Oh, yeah. Everything. (laughs) Everything. Taking pictures, taking pictures of dogs, um, collecting sports cards, collecting guitars, like we talked about. Um, Yes. And like I said, when I processed the pain I was running from... The desire to collect things completely went away, um, but it it I couldn't see that it was crazy. That that, that was my point. I or, you know, I couldn't see it was obsessive, that it yeah. was unhealthy. Um, because I'm like I'm making things, yeah. you know, I'm making stuff around the house, but I wasn't being present in conversations with people. Um, I was thinking see, about. I, I
2: probably would have been. I probably would have helped you, because <laughs> I because I think I, I don't know. It Sounds like a to me, it sounds like a good hobby, but maybe I don't know moderation either.
1: <laughs> I, I think if I had maybe been 25% less consumed with it, yeah, it would have been awesome, yeah. And it certainly didn't hurt anybody, but right. it was six, seven years of my life. Oh, wow, where um. You know, I didn't really listen to my wife. Yeah. I didn't really um
2: That yeah, that's an issue. Yeah,
1: it was it was a distraction. I didn't really process what I was feeling. Um mm-hmm. but I think some of us we got to go through those stages where we just run the wheels off of shit until we go what's the what's my, the fucking what's my deal?
2: Yeah. When I was younger, I had when I was when I was thirteen, twelve, thirteen, I had a boyfriend. I think I did a lot of the things that my dad, the way my dad loved. I think I did to him, you know, trying like trying to spend as much time with him as possible, to like to the point of being inappropriate. Um,
1: like like how so like uh, being jealous.
2: I was I was very jealous. I was extremely jealous. Always. Um, you know, not giving him really any space. I mean, I, this was middle school, and I dated him for, like, 10 months. And, um... And I was just obsessed. I was, like, obsessed in love with him at 13. And everyone would always say, why are you guys still together? Haven't you guys broken up yet? Kind of thing. And it's like, we're because you're in middle school, and people don't ever stay together for months. And, um... And like, I would just sometimes I would, he would kind of say, I get like, we would kind of imply maybe I would come over on the weekend, but then I would just come over because I just couldn't be in my house. And, um, and I didn't know that my obsession of love for him was kind of looking back on it now was definitely a running away from my house (laughs) and my parents. And, um, and when he broke up with me, I didn't know what to do with myself and I felt like I was dying and I couldn't, I couldn't cope to the point um, where I began cutting myself and I kind of did, like I didn't want to like kill myself. I was never, I just wanted a different type of pain that wasn't inside. And it was kind of also my way to see how long it took my parents to notice and they didn't really notice um it was really we had a lady who would come and clean our house like once a week and she was the one who she was close with me and she noticed
1: that's so sad that that's who noticed
2: yeah um i was loving that boy the same way my dad of me and my mom when my mom left my dad acted the same exact way i did um, towards that boy when i when i had that when i broke up with that boy it was exactly the same it was the exact same sort of pain and everything so i knew what my dad was going through but i had decided for myself that i wasn't going to i was going to do things differently after that um because i didn't want to be like my dad
1: Thank you for coming and, and, and talking about this. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thank you. Many, many thanks to Michelle uh, for sharing, sharing her life with us and opening up about, uh, about that. I learned a lot. I, I love when I have a guest on uh, that explores a topic I'm not that familiar with. And uh, so cool. So cool. Uh, before I take it out with some surveys, I want to remind you guys there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you're feeling so inclined, you can go to our website, mentalpod.com, and you can make a one-time uh, PayPal donation, or you can uh, become a recurring monthly donor for as little as five bucks a month, and that is the most important uh, source of support for the show. Um, advertising kind of comes and goes, it's not too reliable, but the uh, monthly donors, you um, Help keep the show alive, and I really appreciate it. And if you would consider becoming a monthly donor, that would uh, would be great. Uh, you can also shop at Amazon through the uh, search portal that we have on our homepage, and that way Amazon will give us a couple of nickels if you buy something It doesn't cost you anything. And you can also help us non-financially by going to iTunes, writing something nice about uh, the podcast. Uh, giving us a good rating uh, or just spreading the word through social media. That really, really helps the podcast grow. So um, let's read some surveys. This is a struggle in a sentence survey. This was filled out by a girl who calls herself May. Uh, She is a teenager and about uh, being bisexual. She writes, being bi is constantly being in doubt. No matter what you do, some part of you feels like you're lying or at least like other people think you are. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself scruffy-looking nerf herder, and uh, she identifies as gay and butch, and uh, she uh, she writes um, about experiencing sexual bias. She writes, being harassed as an ugly butch dyke by 95% of the population and pursued as a hot butch stud by the remaining 5%. And then about being an abuser, she writes, unintentionally emotionally abusive to a partner due to intimacy issues. My emotions dominate all. Trying to feel safe leads to destroying my partners because my safety lies in dominance. I am a monster. I doubt you are a monster. Uh, This is filled out by JJ, and he writes about his ADHD. It's like when you walk into a room, but you forgot why you entered, except it's most rooms. Oh, and this breaks my heart. Snapshot from his life. I can't look at listings for internships or jobs without crying. All those positions are for other people, not me. Well, you know, just uh take that leap of faith. Take that leap of faith. Um This was filled out. And by the way, the the um mixing it up a little bit with the surveys uh tonight, um don't, we don't have any shame and secret survey. I just wanted to take a break from that for, uh, for a week. So the, uh, the, the feel of the surveys tonight is a little lighter uh, than normal. Oh, there's one towards the end that's a, that's a little heavy, but it's beautiful. Um, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a guy who calls himself Manger Grand Fromage. Um, he's a teenager and he writes about his bipolar, uh, bipolar 2. He writes, I feel nothing. I am terrific, and everything is fantastic. There is a hole so deep and dark it threatens to swallow me whole. Oh my God, let's make f- lasagna. <laughs> let's make lasagna. Uh, about his OCD, the last digit I press on a microwave has to be the third, a third of the previous digits, but not four, never four. About his anger issues, I know how to make a wall look good as new. I have for a long time. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Never End, Never Ending Stream of Consciousness. And a snapshot from her life, she writes: "I cannot love myself. I live in fear of loving others, because if I lose that love, my value is gone. I cannot love. I am depressed because I cannot love myself." And my thought was, as I read this, was most of us can't get. I, I think it's almost impossible um, to get out of that whole of hating yourself by yourself. Um, For me, it took going to support groups, beginning to heal a little bit, and then helping other people in the group heal. And that's where I began to feel their love for me, and I knew it was real. And so then I began to think that maybe I too was lovable. That's how it's worked for a lot of people. So that's why I, you know, I love to uh, get on my soapbox about the support groups, but um, being of service to other people in support groups can really, really um, bring self love. Uh, speaking of self love, <laughs> I don't know what that means. Herbert, Herbert's uh, holding the fort down. Um, Herbert there is literally nothing outside that could possibly need your attention his ass is getting so big he like when you he's getting back fat when you know like those those uh what they call in motocross the whoopty doos where where it's just like a series of undulating uh bumps when you pet herbert's back that's his fat is like <laughs> It must be what bacon feels like before you cut bacon. Anyway, sorry to talk shit about you, Herbert. Uh, This was uh, filled out by a woman who calls herself Wannabe Mama, 23, about her anorexia. She writes, I don't think I'm fat. I just don't think I deserve to eat. About her love addiction. Living in fantasy is more comfortable than having a real connection. Oh, boy, do I relate to that. Uh, about her ptsd she writes my body is trying to tell my mind that something horrible happened but my mind refuses to let me know what it was thank you for that uh this is filled out by a woman who calls herself is that all there is boy what's with the dogs tonight uh, horning in on the show they're 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 gonna get their air time no matter what uh she writes about her binge eating. I eat because I hate myself. I hate myself because I eat. And about her love addiction. I think I will make you crazy, so I make you tell me and show me over and over again that I'm okay and we're okay, which makes you crazy. Got some cycles going on there you you need to break. Uh. I've kind of ignored this, uh, this survey for a while, and so I'm going to give it some love tonight. The, uh, the survey, uh, I shouldn't feel this way. And maybe because I've been kind of uh, feeling that way in my life, feeling like, oh, I shouldn't be depressed, or I should be more energetic, you know, should, 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 should. So let's read some of these. This was filled out by a guy who calls himself Lux Interior. And uh, he writes, uh, uh, What would you like pe- people to say about you at your funeral? That I was a hardworking guy who generally cared about other people. Um, he lived his life as though the concept of karma were real. Uh, also, that I cherished any free time spent in the country driving a tractor and working outside. How does writing that make you feel? It gives me a certain perspective about myself that is rarely solicited and makes me introspect in past girl, I guess he meant introspective, in past girlfriends, coworkers, family members, etc., whom I have emotionally hurt in the past in favor of my own selfishness, immaturity, wrongful sense of entitlement, proclivity to be an asshole on occasion. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? Interestingly, I'd like to go back to 1959 when early rock and roll music was at its peak and observe live performances, studio sessions, etc. I would love in 1959 to go to Chess Records and see uh, uh, Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon, uh, Hubert Sumlin, Howlin' Wolf. Uh, that That would be awesome. And I would buy every... Stratocaster and Les Paul I could find, and I'd put it in a vault. He writes, I'm supposed to feel relieved and revitalized that I'm recovering, so to speak, from a serious pornography masturbation addiction that manifested itself for five years or so, but I don't. I feel like a disgusting, immoral person who has irreparably screwed up his adult life. I'm supposed to feel energized about being on my summer vacation from my job selling construction materials today, but I don't. I feel severely depressed, hopeless, and detached because I have no girlfriend and everybody in my long-standing social circle is either now married or moved away. How does writing that make you feel? It is somewhat cathartic and makes me tear up slightly. Um, do you think you're normal for feeling what you do? Not necessarily. I know empirically uh, that there are other people out there who feel exactly as I do, but I'm so detached I feel like I'm alone and I cannot help this awful feeling, which leaves me hopeless, feeling sick and chemically depressed and severely detached. Like I'm watching this live. Uh, I've been given... Uh, man, that, do I hate autocorrect. I'm going to read it as it is. Uh, like I'm watching this live, I've been given unfold on a fucking movie screen or something that I'm not physically a part of. I'll autocorrect, I shake my fist at your sky. This is an awfulsome moment. This was filled out by uh, a guy who calls himself, trade you this pineapple for a Bobby Hall hockey card. I don't know what that means, but I love it. He writes, Awfulsome is what you call it when your ex-girlfriend texts you to say she needs to talk to you. And when she calls, instead of begging you to take her back, she requests some of the dirty pics you took of her so she can post them to her new camgirl site. That had to have been not what you expected. This is uh, from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Squished Stone. And um, she writes, uh, I'd love to hear a podcast about ADD. Uh, listen to the episode with Andrew Donnelly. We talk a lot about ADD on that one. What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Uh, that I was a nice, kind, and I cared about the people. Uh, I don't know if they... That I was nice. I was a nice, kind, and cared about the people loved and that I was created. I swear to God, people, please spell check your shit. How does writing that make you feel? It makes me feel boring and generic, but something I really want people to think about me. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would go back to the happiness that was my childhood and go back to a moment where my family was around a campfire singing the theme of the island we live on. That... That sounds so, in fact that brings up a memory that I I had when I was about coming, I was coming up on five years of of, uh, being sober and I wanted to celebrate it somehow and one of the things I like to do in the summer sometimes is head up into the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. And um, there's this one particular campsite that I love. It's called Big Rock Creek State Park, and it's at about 7,000 feet elevation, so the weather is awesome. It's not too hot, and you've got these huge, huge uh, streams barreling through the, the, the campsite because um, there's tons of snowpack uh, further up on the mountain, and it's just beautiful and rugged, and, and if you reserve early, you can get a campsite that is literally on the stream, and you hear a it at night, you, you know, it's just, it's the best. So I couldn't find anybody to go because the only time you can get this campsite is if you reserve it during the week and most people were working. So I was like, well, you know what? I'm learning self-love. I'm going to go up there by myself. I'm going to be with myself and my higher power and I'm just going to dig it. And the first 15 hours, it's fantastic. I'm at peace. I'm hiking. I come back, you know, I set up my little thing to, to, to cook my food. I'm going to grill up some hot dogs and uh i got my my little fire going and uh and there's this family that is just set up and they are like they are everything i always wanted my family to be they're they're getting along with each other they're laughing at each other's jokes the son you know has the physique that i always wanted and he catches a fish out of the stream that is like the biggest fish that's ever been caught at the campground. And their dog's running around and it's catching the frisbee and it's obeying, which my dogs have never done. And all of a sudden I'm feeling shittier and shittier about myself. And they're cooking this amazing dinner and I look down and the single hot dog that I had been cooking had rolled off the grill into the dirt. <laughs> And at that point, I just laughed, and I was like, all right, universe, I get it. I'll stop comparing myself. And I uh, packed up my shit, and I left. That was the end of my self-love weekend. But anyway, I wanted to share that with you. Um, Continuing. She writes, I'm supposed to feel good about my body, but I don't. I feel extremely ugly. I'm supposed to feel blasé about what other people think about me, but I don't. I feel like they're constantly judging me. I'm supposed to feel excited about sex, but I don't. I feel neutral and it's not something I think about that often. I'm supposed to feel happy about my life, but I don't. I feel lost and trapped. How does it feel uh, to write your real feelings out? depressed? do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Not for the way my brain works, but I wish I could be like everybody else, man. Uh, that is the most common thing in the world is to is to compare our insides to other people's outsides and it's one of the cruelest things we can do to ourselves this is from the what has helped you survey and this is filled out by anita and her issues are depression fibromyalgia and possible seasonal affective disorder and what has helped you a season uh, a sad light sad stands for seasonal affective disorder uh she writes i have trouble in winter with getting up as i live in scotland and there's a little daylight i find blasting myself with light seems to help me wake up properly also your podcast on fibromyalgia was amazing it helped me realize how much other people go through in trying to deal with their illnesses yeah check out the um the episodes uh, with um, I believe it's Michelle uh, M and um, oh, why am I blanking on her uh, her name? Uh, Terry. Uh, that's a Terry's episode on fibromyalgia is really great. And so uh, so is Michelle's. I think it's Michelle. Oh my God. you doddering old man. This is the same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Sally May's bitch. He is in his 30s. What would you like people to say at your funeral? That I left the planet a better place than I found it. How does writing that make you feel? Sad. They'll probably actually say something like that, but I still don't believe it. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? Uh, If I could only watch but can't change... I'd buy a copy of Rosetta Stone Dutch and then go spy on the life of Vincent van Gogh. I know he died thinking of himself a failure, but in 1889 alone he created 150 drawings and paintings. If I could learn his secret for getting shit done, even if I was never able to defeat the fear, and also died considering myself a failure, it would be nice to have history at least remember me as the person I tried to be. I'm supposed to feel privileged about having an education, but I don't. I feel enslaved under the weight of crippling student loans that control my every decision. I'm supposed to feel blessed about having a creative mind, but I don't. I feel cursed because there are few jobs for creative poor people in America, just management and sales. Maybe if I never had these student loans, I could eke out a living or start my own business, but they've eliminated the purpose I got them for. I'm supposed to feel excited about having been able to travel to some exotic corners of the world, but I don't. I feel depressed that so much needs to be done to make the planet a better place and wish everyone else would start pulling their own weight around here so I don't have to feel like Atlas being crushed with the world on his shoulders. Uh, How does it make... You feel to write your real feelings out. Pissed off. I'm pissed off at myself for being a weak little pussy. I'm pissed off at my parents for believing in me and telling me I could be anything I wanted to be. I'm pissed off at my childhood church for feeding me lies about how the universe operates, which held me back for decades. I'm pissed off at the corrupt politicians who sell health care and education in America like it's used cars and at the American people who let it happen. I'm pissed off at me for being pissed off at all those people. Buddy, sending you, sending you a hug. I know the feeling. I know the feeling. It's one of the reasons why I, I, uh, I have trouble watching the news because it just uh, makes me cynical. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Spiderling. Her issues are anorexia, anxiety, and PTSD, and she's a uh, sex abuse and rape survivor. And what has helped her? She writes starting an online support blog for survivors and answering. Uh, when others write to me for support or guidance, I feel like I am giving others what I never had. Someone to tell them that they are believed and that what happened was not their fault. Sometimes addressing their traumas puts me face to face with my own, but I feel stronger knowing that I face a common enemy. Building a community to fight for those who too often lose their voice when they are hurt is the closest I will get to a chance to say those things to myself. That's beautiful. I should frame that. Kudos. 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 This is uh, from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey from our our friend, Monsieur Grand Fromage. Um, And again, he's a a teenager. And uh, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Uh, He finally has the answer to the question he could never answer. He finally knows all there is to know. How does writing that make you feel? Worried that I don't think people will be sad at my funeral. Happy that people aren't sad at my funeral. Uh, If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I would go back and watch the universe start and then everything up until now. Boy, you're greedy. (laughs) You want to watch everything. Um, Or to go see the next Star Wars movie. I'm supposed to feel happy about talking to others, but I don't. I feel that it is going to be more hassle than it is worth. I'm supposed to feel sad about death, but I don't. I feel like that it may be of some relief, not suicidally nor homicidally, and that life is... Often quite annoying. I'm supposed to feel upset about losing friends, but I don't. I feel better that I don't have to care. I'm supposed to feel a lot about sex, but I don't. I feel that it isn't a big deal. How does it make you feel to write these out? A whiny, pathetic, somewhat relieved. Do you think abnormal? You're abnormal for feeling what you do. Yes. No. You're not. Uh, would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? Quite probably. Well, I can assure you that many people, many people feel that way. Um, this is from the What Has Helped You survey filled out by a woman who calls herself P. And her issues are unspecified depressive disorder, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and tendencies. What has helped you deal with them? Having a pet has been the most helpful thing for me. During my last hospitalization for suicidal thoughts, the nurse told me that when my cat died that I had to go the next day and get another one, and that is almost what happened. I inherited my current cat, Sophie, from a friend who needed to rehome her. I've never been a cat person and still don't think of myself as a cat person, but Sophie is special. She just wants to be held like a baby. She actually will climb on me until she is in my face and will then slowly roll back until she is being cradled with her belly and legs in the air. It's her slow motion trust fall as she knows I will always catch her. She looks into my eyes and purrs as I rub her belly. That's when I know that the 10 minutes a day that she needs this attention gives me enough love and positive energy to get through the next 24 hours. 10 minutes of my time completely focused on her is well worth what I get in return. It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. This is uh, from uh, the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey filled out by uh, Wannabe Mama. I believe we've read another one of her surveys. And... What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Uh, She was an incredible mother, a wonderful wife, and a loving and caring person towards everyone. She was brave and lived the life she chose to live regardless of any adversity she faced. She was a shining example of how to live in an honest and meaningful way. How does writing that make you feel? Like I'm working towards something good, but also like I can never really attain all of what I want. Who can? Who can? I think if you can attain a little bit of what you wrote your life is a success if you had a time machine how would you use it i would go back in time to watch my childhood around age four to see if i really was molested and if so by whom <coughs> excuse me i'm supposed to feel confident about getting married but i don't i feel like this is the biggest choice i will make and i'm afraid i'm going to kick myself later i'm supposed to want a career but i don't i would much rather be a stay-at-home mother or care for a family I- who says that you shouldn't want to be a stay-at-home mom? Um, and I think everybody uh, has doubts in their mind about getting married. Because um, if you if you don't, I don't think you're paying attention. <laughs> I don't think you're looking hard enough for your, your partner's flaws. Uh, I'm supposed to feel scared about quitting my job, but I don't. I feel free. Again, all these things that you're feeling about these, I think, are... Healthy. I'm supposed to feel like my partner is perfect in every way, but I don't. I I don't believe anybody should think that their partner is perfect in every way. Uh, she writes, "I feel like he's an amazing person and has a bunch of faults, just like everyone else." Um, m- this might be the most well-adjusted person I've ever read a survey of. Uh, how does it make you feel to write your real feelings out? Uh, like I have a lot more feelings. But it's too hard to put them into that format right now. I feel tired and a bit depressed. Uh, Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Not abnormal, no. Probably exceedingly normal. Yeah. This is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Murphy. And she writes, Three years ago, I was fired from my first, quote, real job. And I... would Only had it for a few months. I was not provided a reason, nor do I feel that it was deserved. I got the job after I decided to quit grad school, much to lots of people's disappointment, and getting fired did not help. I spent a while unemployed and then took a low-paying, low-skill, not-in-my-field job. Looking for better work on and off, and the more time that passed, the worse my outlook got. The more worthless I felt and the worse my resume looked, given the long time not having a relevant job. I even had a referral for an interview, and the interviewer immediately indicated her disapproval, asking me why I quit grad school, why I had been fired, and why I was working in an irrelevant field. Worst fear is completely realized. A few weeks ago, I interviewed for another job that sounded awesome and was at least miles above where I was. I thought the interview went pretty well. They weirdly approved of me quitting grad school and didn't bat an eye at my current low-level position. The next day, I got a voicemail, and I listened in a panic as the interviewer said she heard I had been fired previously. But she went on to leave a lengthy voicemail saying that it wasn't a red flag at all, and hey, sometimes it's just not a good fit. Things happen, and even that she herself had been fired totally the nicest and most understanding reaction I'd gotten outside of close family and friends. I called back and explained, and she said no problem, and the next time she would contact me would be to offer me the job. I'm at my new desk. Holy shit, I have a desk. Awesome. Awesome. This is from the Shouldn't Feel This Way survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Bez, B-E-Z. What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? I guess I'd like people to say that I'm thoughtful. I always tried my best to help in any way I could. Hopefully that I'm a free spirit, honest, and kind. How does writing that make you feel? Confused. I feel like I don't really know how people see me. I don't really know how I want to be viewed. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? to go back to watch some of my father's life. I don't know much about his younger years as he passed away when I was five. I've always wanted to know if we had a lot in common as others have said we do. The mystery of all, the mystery of it all is the hardest part. Hold on. i my wet my beak. I'm supposed to feel fulfilled about life, but I don't. I feel constantly worried in what I'm supposed to be doing and how I should be doing it. I'm supposed to feel excited about going out to do things, but I don't. I feel like I want to get it over and done with. I feel like I can only be at peace in the late night in, the late night in bed where I know nothing is really going on. Oh my God, do I relate to that. If I could, If all 24 hours a day could be sitting in the dark with Netflix and popcorn watching a documentary about something that's kind of fucked up. Do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do all the time? I'm worried I'm becoming obsessed with what people think of me or what they are saying about me. I feel like I need approval from everyone I meet. Otherwise, I am worthless. You know, the 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 sad truth is everybody else is thinking about themselves as much as we are. Uh, would knowing other people feel the same way Make you feel better about yourself. Yeah, sharing with others and finding out that they usually have exactly the same feelings is a great comfort. Join the forum. That would be a great way. Um, let's see. Same survey filled up by a woman who calls herself Need More TLC. What would you like people to say at your funeral? I would want to tell them funny anecdotes and what I said and did. I'd also want them to tell a really flattering story where I came out as a hero or something extraordinary at the end. How does writing that make you feel? That I've got some work to do. If you had a time machine, how would you use it? I'd dance at Studio 54 and be reckless. Um, I'm supposed to feel in love, but I'd rather just be alone. Uh, How does writing that make you feel? Embarrassed you think you're abnormal? I'm not sure. Uh, People don't seem as ambivalent about their spouses as I do. Well, you you need to ask them because I bet a lot of people do. Would knowing other people feel the same way make you feel better about yourself? I think it would make me sadder. What's the point in marriage? This is, um, let's see. Is this the one I wanted to read next? What is this one called? This is filled out by a um, trans male uh, who calls himself Ali Ali Oxenfree, and he is 16 years old. What would you like people to say about you at your funeral? He was a great journalist who was fluent in many languages, read almost any book you can think of, and traveled all around the world. He did great work for human rights and social justice. He had many very attractive lovers throughout his life, but eventually found happiness with his wonderful spouse of many years. He was also the first transgender man to ever surgically receive a fully functioning male reproductive system. How does writing that make you feel? It's nice to just think about the basic things I really want to get out of life, but it also makes me nervous to see that there are so many things I hope to accomplish in my lifetime. It just doesn't seem like there's enough time in one life. It deeply saddens me that human existence is too fleeting to be able to devour every book ever written learn every fact there is to know, master every language that's ever been spoken under the sun. And even if I could pack all that into one lifetime, I also want to have as many deep, loving relationships, romantic, platonic, whatever, as I can. I hope that when I die, I can rest easy knowing I both thought and felt widely and deeply, and I hope that I won't have to agonize about the things I never got to do. I also hope that science can make shit better for trans people because I just really really wish i had a functioning cisgender dude penis it also makes me feel like a grandiose narcissistic douchebag that so does not sound like a grandiose narcissistic douchebag you i am envious of the passion that that you have um i have i have experienced portions in in my life when i've had that zest for life and it is amazing and you have it now so um just know that that is not a given for every person if you had a time machine how would you use it the first thing i would do is go back and observe the daily lives of people in every culture across time it just fascinates me to think what normal ass regular people were doing and thinking during important times in history what was in their hearts i wonder how people in europe must have coped during the black death when a third of the population of europe died after all mental health was the same then as it is as it is now regardless of how our understanding of it has changed Second thing I would do is go back through generations of my family and just watch the cycle of abuse unfold. I want to know how we got here. Um, I'm supposed to feel proud that I got a decent score on the SAT, 2180, but I don't. I feel ashamed and sick. I just keep thinking 20 more points and I could have gotten a nice round number like 2200 and that's okay, but it's certainly not a Harvard level score, you piece of shit. Uh, i 'm not supposed to feel threatened by my sweet boyfriend 's masculinity he 's also uh, he also being transgender, but I do I feel uneasy sometimes because he passes better than I do, even though he 's younger and smaller than I am and I wear generally more masculine clothing than he does. I'm not supposed to feel comfortable, I'm not supposed to feel uncomfortable with my sexuality, but I do. I sometimes feel weird about the fact that I'm dating another boy who proudly identifies as bisexual when I don't have any idea how to describe my sexual orientation. I describe myself as straight before we I described myself as straight before we started dating, but now I don't know since I'm attracted to him, but I'm definitely still overwhelmingly attracted to women and not at all attracted to cis men. I'm supposed to feel proud to be transgender, but I don't. I feel like it would be nice to just get all this shit over with, hormone treatment, top surgery, legal name and gender change, etc., and just live my life having people think I'm a cis man. I just wish I could have been born a cisgender male. It could have saved me so much wasted time and unhappiness. I'm supposed to feel glad that my mental health struggles have improved so dramatically, but I don't. I feel dumb that I don't have any issue that's important enough to have a label. You're 16 and you're a trans male in a country that still thinks of you as not a full citizen. And you don't think you have any issues that are large. That that just takes my breath away. You've got a lot on your plate. You have got a lot on your plate. Um... You were that it just it just stopped me in my tracks. That you 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 don't think you have a struggle. You were born into a body that you don't identify with. That is a struggle, my friend. That is a struggle. Um. Continuing, he writes, "I'm supposed to feel smart because everyone tells me I am, but I don't. I feel like a complete ignorant idiot. If there's ever any bit of information that comes up that I don't know, that I didn't know before, i.e., if someone mentions a well-known person casually in conversation, and everyone else in the conversation seems to know who it is, but I don't, I will feel like a completely dumb piece of shit. Even if the other people never never find out I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, you know what? I could go on." There, there's a lot more here about stuff that he feels he shouldn't feel, um, but I think you get a, a good picture of the uh, the struggle. How does it make you feel to write your real feelings out? It makes me feel a bit ashamed. All of my feelings are very melodramatic, and they aren't about important things. I completely disagree. They are all, They all sort of come from a place of privilege, and I don't really think I should be having them. I'm kind of an asshole. I wish I were a better, more emotionally intelligent person. I wish you were more compassionate towards yourself, and I think every person hearing me read this is thinking the same thing. Um, thank you for filling that out, and um, I, I love your zest for life. That that that's the the thing that I really wanted to read. That you know, the two things. One is that you're you're not giving weight. Um, you don't think you you have a reason to say, hey, you know, I'm struggling over here. Um, and just because you can be privileged in one area uh, doesn't mean that, you know, you have no right to say, hey, I'm hurting uh, in other areas of your life. This is an awful moment filled out by... Um, A girl who calls herself, she's 16, she calls herself a heinous caffeine addict. She writes, last year my family and I were staying at a lodge, the kind where there's kind of a common living room and bathroom and then everyone had their own bedroom. My dad passed out drunk in the living room and at around one in the morning I went out to get him to go to bed. I got him awake and said, dad, you have to go to bed. He said, fuck off or something like that and I went back to my room, figuring that he was awake now and would get up on his own. He didn't, so a minute later I went back out and tried again. I woke him up more aggressively and told him it was inappropriate for him to be sleeping in a public space. He called me some names and told me to go away and whatever, but this time he was definitely awake and went back to my room, immediately terrified, because I knew he would follow me to give me shit for disrespecting him. It was really late, so I wasn't being entirely rational, I guess, but I couldn't figure out how to lock the door, so I wedged it closed with a chair. Sure enough, a minute later, here he was, hammering hammering wordlessly on my closed door in the middle of the night. Eventually, he gave up, and I thought it was over, but about 30 seconds later, my father, six foot three, drunk and angry, opens and topples through my unlocked window and into my room. It was unreal. He yelled at me for a while, threatened to disinherit me, but the whole time, all I could think was, holy shit, this will be a good story. Neither of us ever spoke of it again. God, that is... (laughs) It's It's like something out of The Simpsons. Um... This, this is the survey I was uh, telling you about that's kind of heavy, but um, also kind of beautiful. This is from the I Shouldn't Feel This Way survey. Filled out by a guy who calls himself Not My Brother's Keeper. Um, what would you like people to say about you at your funeral? Uh, it was time. How does writing that make you feel? Like an asshole because of how my brother died. That's why I'm here, though. To tell you about that, uh, go to question three. You had a time machine, how would you use it? You can't change history, you can only observe it. My brother killed himself several years ago. I do not know exactly what led him to decide to end himself. I've heard some things and suspect some things, but I do not know and have not have not pressed to know, do not need to know. He was not the one with a history of mental illness. Of three children, he was the only one not to have been in serious treatment. He was beloved the funeral home stayed open late to allow a couple thousand to shuffle through. They had waited in the rain. Men, women, and children. Many children. He had been a teacher. An artist and a teacher. And a wonderful human being. A husband. A friend to many. A member and a leader. And an exemplary son. And my brother. I know that he died when a train hit him. I know that was not an accident. I do not know if he stepped in front of it, or leapt in front of it, or sat there on the tracks, or lay himself down upon the iron, or if he watched death coming, or shut his eyes to it, or faced the other way and pondered the flashing lights of the crossing gate, or the trees along the tracks, or the stars in the sky, or the pile of identifiables he, he left there, just there, where it could be found and he could be identified. There are many things I do not know. I'm supposed to feel that if I had a time machine, I would go back in time and talk him out of it, or yank his ass to safety, or stop the train—something. But I do not feel that way. It was his choice; he was free to make it. It is not for me to take that from him, no matter how desperately—no, no matter how desperately I wish he had not taken himself from me. So, what I wish—if I had a time machine would be to go back to that night and be there. To be with him. To comfort him. To show him that he was loved. To be a witness without judgment, only love. He should not have died alone. And my God, if he'd slipped his hand from mine and made that final choice and taken that final step and still he died, if so, if so, I'd wail and scream at the heavens and claw at the metal that overran him and cry a lifetime in a day. I'd take that on. I'd pick it up and carry it all my life if I could go back and be there for him and with him and he and he would know at the last that he was not, never was, alone. How does it feel to write your feelings out at risk? I would hate, hate, hate for my parents to know my true feelings about this. They would not understand. They might be terribly angry. do you think you're abnormal for feeling what you do? Yes i don't, I think a lot of people thank you for that by the way that was that was beautiful. Um, I think a lot of people hearing that feel exactly like you do because of those of us who've been in that dark place. know that we can never fully judge what it's like to be in another person's skin and we can say hey please hang on please s- stay here you're loved you're wanted but um, I don't we're going to end on an up note here this is an awful moment and uh, you know you know I love me some awful This is filled out by a woman who calls herself Hazelnut, and she writes, I was walking around the house on a lazy Saturday, naked, feeling sexy, doing the laundry, paying bills, etc., naked, hoping my husband would notice and be turned on. He sees me strutting around, and he says, Can I light your fuse? I'm confused, and I say, Huh? What? This is not the dialogue I was expecting. Then he repeats the question, can I light your fuse? And he looks directly at my crotch. I look down, and I have a tampon string hanging out. I had forgotten it was my period.
0: (laughs) Oh, I
1: love a good awful moment. (laughs) That one, that's Hall of Fame. That's Hall of Fame. Well, if you're out there and you're feeling uh, you're feeling stuck and alone, I hope that the, the interview you heard today, I hope the surveys you heard, I hope uh, anything I've said has um, helped bring you a little bit of comfort. Maybe put a smile on your face, a little pepper in your step, a little bee in your bonnet, a little banana in your pants. I think I might have made that last one up. And uh, I hope that you realize you're not alone. And uh, thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. It's everybody I know weird bizarrely it's beautifully, fucked up, know weird bizarrely beautiful. it's beautifully it's fucked up in some weird ways. Bizarrely
2: beautiful. everybody beautifully everybody fucked up in some weird, weird bizarrely way. Bizarrely